There's a world where I can go and tell my secrets to fall down guitar and this week if you didn't guess it we're talking about Brian Wilson well that's not all we're talking about so welcome back to another week of your favorite podcast 21st century rocker mom podcast with me your host Tani Candler that's why I'm sitting here in a bathrobe you wonder why I'm sitting here in a bathrobe today well, you're going to learn a little bit. If you haven't seen the, you know, the Big Lebowski, it's not about that. We're not talking about the Big Lebowski. We're talking about Brian Wilson. So welcome to the show. If you just got here, I'm happy to be back with you for another week. It's been a crazy week. We're going to kind of talk about the rise, the fall and the redemption of Brian Wilson. We're going to talk about a few other things too. We're going to talk about some experiences with Metal Lords, a little bit about uh, Pogo the Clown and some serial killers and John Wayne Gacy. We're going to talk about the new project that I'm working on, the collaboration. I'm going to spill a little bit of the beans about that. So you're going to want to stay tuned for this episode because I got so much coming down the pipe for you. So, you know, if you don't know, in my room, it was written by Brian Wilson, performed by the Beach Boys. You've probably heard it if you have you know, if you know anything, if you've been anywhere, if you turned on your radio, if you put it on the oldie station or, you know, you listen to, if you like that kind of music, I listen to older music from that kind of era. They like the flower power sort of era in the early 60s kind of stuff. If you're into that, you probably listened to the Beach Boys growing up. You probably, you probably did. I bet you $100 you listened to one, at least, at least one Beach Boys song growing up. And they were all written by 
Shock and surprise, not the Beach Boys, but Brian Wilson, just himself, wrote those. So it's episode 62, and I'm going to keep going with this musical thing, because I think this musical thread is fun. We're going to keep it going. Maybe we'll get it weird next week. I don't know. We might get weird. We might get more musical. I don't know what we're going to do. Oh, my gosh. I got to talk to you about Metal Lords, which I saw on Netflix. Speaking of using different instrumentation and, uh, you know, kind of people that were more like standing on the sidelines, kind of like Brian Wilson was, kind of not outcast, but <clears throat> not in with the in crowd. So same with Metal Lords. We'll talk about that a little bit later. That is a fantastic series on Netflix. We'll chat about that later. But the soundtrack of summer, the Beach Boys and Brian Wilson, they idealized American culture. And, and in, the, in the process, simultaneously, they became American idols themselves. But some stars fall. This happens. It's inevitable. And boy, <laughs> did Brian Wilson ever fall. He fell hard. But unlike some stars, he caught back up and he did better than ever. And that's why I say I want to talk about the rise and the fall and the redemption of Brian Wilson, amongst other things today on the show. I mean, the reality of the matter is I really should have done this show in bed. You know what I mean? But I, I, I didn't, but I, because I thought that would be something. But I'm already doing this in a friggin' bathrobe, so that's, that's something. That's something. So yeah, rise, fall, redemption. So I mean, like, let's look at rise. It's like you're come up, you know, you're coming up, the rise of something. It's, it's, it's just arriving, it's brand new, it's the rise of it, it's, it's, it's how it's gaining popularity. So that was like the rise of Brian Wilson. And then the fall, like anybody, we trip, we're human. We trip, we fall, we fuck up. Sometimes we won't get up. Sometimes we can't get up. Sometimes we can't do it for a number of years. Sometimes we can't do it at all. Sometimes you just, you just don't get up. Something, there's such a terrible blow and you fall so hard that it's just, you can't get up. It just doesn't happen. Redemption though. There's something to be said for redemption because pulling yourself out of the fire and, you know, kind of emerging like the phoenix, like, you know, of course I'm going right, you know, to the Polish thing right now, but like coming out of the flames, like a fucking bird of war, like a motherfucker, like just come out of those flames. You know what I'm saying? But nothing is more metal than fucking redeeming oneself and having redemption and getting up, never quitting, pushing fucking through all the bullshit. And then finally gaining some kind of peace through all that fucking turmoil that you've been going through because you've not been going through all that turmoil for nothing like don't fucking kid yourself here you haven't been going through all that shit for nothing if you've been going through a lot of shit you know what i mean you're fighting through all the bullshit there's going to be some redemption at the end of the line i don't know when that's going to be i can't tell you what would tanya do if tanya had a magic crystal ball she would tell you that you know, I would tell you exactly what you wanted to know, but I don't. I can't tell you. I'm not Miss Cleo. I don't see the future, but I do see the future of not giving the fuck up. In my opinion, Brian Wilson is the greatest American songwriter of all time. That's just in my humble opinion. I think he has probably had the most fascinating life and the longest life of a lot of songwriters, like he's still here, which is like, uh, like amazing and a shock and a surprise to a lot of people. And I just think he's one of the most fascinating personalities in, in American pop culture. I think he's just an absolutely fascinating human being and his story 
is not told a lot. You know, Brian Wilson is famously <clears throat> more reclusive and kind of hangs out, like I say, on the sidelines a bit and would rather kind of be at home. He's a bit of a homebody. Brian Douglas Wilson was born on June 20th, 1942, and he's born in Hawthorne, California, to Murray and Audrey Wilson. Those are his parents. He was the first son. In 1944, his brother Dennis came along, Dennis the Menace, and in 1946, his little baby brother Carl was born. It was post-World War II, and they moved into a housing tract in Southern California, like I say, in Hawthorne, and there were all these post-World War II houses, and they all kind of looked the same, you know, the kind of little boxes on the hillside, little boxes made of ticky-tacky, little boxes on the hillside, and they all look just the same there's two bedrooms and one bathroom and the basement probably isn't finished but there's wood paneling and there's a bar and they all look just the same well fucking the 60s man when they built houses in the 50s and like they built those houses so they were living in this house in hawthorne california now, Brian Wilson's dad, his father, Murray Wilson, worked in aviation by day, but really was kind of a hopeful songwriter by, by, by night and actually had Lawrence Welk play one of his songs on his show called Two Step Sidestep. And that was kind of like the highlight of Murray Wilson's like career. That was his like, woo moment. Like, wow, I got played on the Lawrence Welk show. I am the shit. That's it. And so that was an ego boost that I guess he probably desperately needed. And he wrote on that for a while. Now, Brian's entire family was musical. Dad played piano. Mom apparently was lovely from all accounts and played organ and everybody sang. And it was common at the Wilson house for everybody to kind of gather around and, and, and just sing together and just harmonize. And that's kind of just what they did. Now, Murray Wilson was a particularly hard man and he was particularly cruel to the boys. He was not, he was not a nice guy. Even down to being the reason for Brian's partial deafness after one particular very physical beating. Brian lost some of his hearing from getting, you know, the crap kicked out of him by his dad, which is just like unbelievable, right? So his mother, she is the lovely woman that she was. She drank, you know, a lot and she, she really turned to alcohol to cover up a lot, I think, of her, her emotional pain. And, uh, to kind of hide, you know, what was going on and how she was feeling. So she was kind of self-medicating back then. So kind of addiction kind of was running rampant in the family. But there was a lot of violence at home. It was not a, it was not a calm home environment. So Brian Lott retreated to his room to make music. But the boys learned quickly that their dad, because as much as their dad beat them and, and you know, yelled at them and was hard as fuck with them, they learned quickly that Murray had a soft spot and that soft spot was music. So they learned quickly how to kind of manipulate their dad and, you know, learn that his soft spot was music and what they could do to calm him down was, was music. And Brian fell in love with the music of George Gershwin pretty early on because those were the things were, that were played in his house. If it wasn't arguing, there was music always playing in Brian Wilson's house. He, he fell in love with George Gershwin, you know, like, summertime and the living is easy or rhapsody in blue or it ain't necessarily so those songs brian wilson actually did an album 
not too, too many years ago called Brian Wilson Reimagines Gershwin. And they're all George Gershwin songs that Brian Wilson's kind of reimagined and re kind of produced himself and put out. And they're fantastic. Into his teens, he became enamored with a jazz vocal group called the Four Freshmen. And they had these four-way vocals and he spent hours and hours picking apart these jazz harmonies to kind of see how they sounded individually. And he'd hear each part really separately, like Brian could really pick out everybody's part, everybody's respective part. And he'd, he'd listen to specific songs like, it's a blue world without you. Google the four freshmen. They, they've got great vocals and the way they blend together is beautiful. And you'll see how the Beach Boys got those harmonies because Brian Wilson studied the four freshmen. So he would kind of direct and hand out the vocal parts and they just sit there and harmonize as a family, you know, and that, that was their pastime. They do it on a Sunday after dinner or whatever. And, you know, his dad would be at the piano with a fucking pipe in his mouth and his mom would be at the organ with a drink. And he said that he'd hand out all the harmonies to everybody except Dennis. Brian Wilson claimed that he was too uh, stupid to figure it out at the time. And so he wouldn't sing, but he'd sit there and that's what they do. It was, it was, it was a family thing that they did because there had to be something to calm down Murray Wilson, Brian Wilson's dad. Like, I mean, the guy was, he was terrible. Like he was terrible. He once tied Brian to a tree for misbehaving. Like what, what parent does that? He tied him to a tree for being bad. Now, living in California and, and, and growing up in California and being in Hawthorne, the boys enjoyed going to Disneyland a lot. And <clears throat> they liked to go, you know, down Main Street and have all the treats and ride all the rides. And it was kind of like a California staple in those days. It was a California adventure. So Disneyland was a big part of, of their life. And Brian was special. He had a gift for music and his parents recognized this really early on. So seeing that Brian was given every lesson and every instrument and every kind of piece of musical equipment that he needed that they could afford, if it could be afforded, they did it because Brian needed it. And his dad saw that he was so gifted and so talented, so young. And as he got older, that skill only got better. Now, and I don't know if he saw just talent or if he saw dollar signs, but Either way, a little from column A, a little from column B. He was just, he saw this genius of a child and saw a bit of both. And also living vicariously through his child. Now this is something that's scary. Living vicariously through your child is a dangerous thing. Living vicariously through your child, you know, doing something, watching your child do something that you wanted to do and almost like forcing them into it because you couldn't do it. That's scary. So Murray was doing a bit of that and living trying to, living vicariously through Brian, wanting to succeed through Brian and through Brian's, you know, accolades, do the same thing. And that's dangerous and very abusive in my mind, in my opinion. And I think it's a very, a very slippery slope doing that kind of things. Nonetheless, Brian seemed to be a high achiever all around. He excelled at sports at Hawthorne High. He was on the football team, on the, on the, you know, on the baseball team. He went out for track and field. But he was always not quite in with the in crowd. 
it just he was just always kind of off on the sidelines and that was okay but he was always true to his family and the music the moment he got home he just got to his bedroom and he 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 practiced he that's what he did he practiced and he just sat there and picked out harmonies or played bass or wrote songs or lyrics or whatever in his in his book and and got better like i say he just he just practiced and dedicated himself to music when he wasn't doing schoolwork and speaking of family the beach boys were a family affair <clears throat> to say the least brian and his two brothers Dennis and Carl were joined by his cousin, Mike Love. And just as the Wilsons went away for the weekend, they left the boys with some pizza money as they all kind of got together. And what did the boys go and spend it on? Did they spend it on drugs? No. Did they spend it on alcohol? No. Did they spend it on wild women? No, they didn't. They spent it on renting musical instruments. And they had a bit of like a garage show and kind of a jam and Dennis really didn't know how to play anything so they said they just put him on drums. Carl could play a little bit of guitar because he was listening to R&B things kind of like Chuck Berry at the time and you know like Johnny Be Good. Brian Wilson was handing out harmonies and so he kind of became the band master but he kind of played together and when they got home you know Audrey Wilson and Murray Wilson kind of heard about it from the neighbors but they also heard that the boys were quite good. So the boys had some explaining to do, but like I say, Murray soon realized that the boys were kind of serious about doing this as a band, and he took them to the studio to record their first single, right? And this was more of like an audition. They went to like a mom and pop studio uh, in LA and recorded something called Surfing. And through this audition at this mom and pop shop, they recorded a song called Surfing. Surfing is the only life, the only way for me now. Surf, surf with me. And this is bomb, bomb, dip, 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 bomb, bomb. So it's kind of like that kind of thing going on. And they they recorded it under the Pendletones because they wore Pendleton shirts. But they got misprinted when they, they put out the single. So they had a small single on a local label. And it came out as the Beach Boys. And they heard it, they said, when they were in the car at the Foster's Freeze, having like a burger and a shake. It was like a car hop place, like an A&W sort of place. A car hop place where they bring your food to your car on the roller skates or whatever. And Carl threw up because he was so nervous and they were just all losing their minds. And at that time, Brian's dad, Murray, kind of self-appointed himself the guy's manager and tried to sell the hell out of the boys. Um, they played sock hops and radio shows for free. And they finally approached Capitol Records and after a while, it turned out the Capitol was interested as long as Brian had complete involvement. And Brian had already started writing like with other people and collaborating. We'll talk about me collaborating later because that's something fun I want to talk about. But Brian, like I say, he'd already started writing and doing a collaborative thing with uh, other people like Gary Usher. And his father just, he saw these people that Brian was collaborating with them were outside the family as literally just that, outsiders. He didn't want them involved. He didn't want them to have any part in what Brian was doing. It was just not, it was not cool with him. So outsiders were not welcome. And Murray Wilson made that very clear, abundantly clear. The Beach Boys started recording with Capitol. But like I say, Brian's dad really tried to force himself onto the role of producer again and again and again. And Brian was quite competent. It didn't sit well with him that his dad was, sit, you know, trying to sit in there as producer. Because as a producer, Brian was kind of that wunderkind 
that could kind of do it himself. So he really didn't need his dad in there. And, you know, I'll say this. You don't always need someone like poking their head in in the studio. Like it's, you can't choose your family. And, and Brian Wilson certainly didn't get to. Now, Dennis Wilson was actually the most true beach boy that they had in the Beach Boys because he was the only one who surfed and wasn't afraid of the water. Brian Wilson was deathly afraid of the water. And after Dennis would come back from the beach and, you know, skip band practice, he'd have these wild stories about the surf and the sun and the girls and the sex in the beach. And it would obviously paint this picture in Brian Wilson's head. And he was able to kind of extract from that the essence of what you know, the summer was and what the beach was. Everyone, everyone's heard Beach Boys songs. And he, he wrote from, from that. And the Beach Boys, they, they did, you know, they did great, you know, having these songs. They were popular with people. And it was at a show at the Sunset Strip that Brian met his future wife, actually. After they started recording these songs, they had a really important show at the Sunset Strip. And... Gary Usher was dating a woman named Ginger at the time. And Ginger uh, was in a band called The Honeys. And she brought her friend, friends, Marilyn and Diane Rovell, down to, 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 to the Sunset Strip to see the Beach Boys. And this is where Brian would unknowingly meet his future wife, Marilyn Rovell, and her sister, and their cousin Ginger, like I say, the Honeys. The Beach Boys contain like they just continued and continued and continued to gain popularity. But Brian kind of hid in his music. He liked to be at home. He liked spending time with Marilyn and her family at the Rovell's house because they had a very different family dynamic that he had than he had kind of like at home. And they were very welcoming. He was kind of a goofy guy. He had a great personality. They just loved to like listen to him talk and rap on about this and that. And he was really accepted in their home. And to him, I think it was mind blowing because it was like, here, you know, you can hang out with my daughter. Like, this is this is all fine. We're just going to accept you into our, our home. And, you know, he's like a, a Protestant kid and just growing up in an abusive home and just finds this lovely home with these people who just want to take them, take him under like their wing. And here I, I sacrifice my daughter to you. So he, it was still going on at home that his dad was kind of playing on his insecurity and he really pushed him in the studio and he clamored after control. And this was driving Brian nuts. So he finally moved out to the age of 21. He stayed at home till the age of 21 because he couldn't just deal with Murray anymore. And after a big fight with him, he decided, I'm going to move out. I'm getting the fuck out of here. And he spent many nights, like I say, at the Rovells, just being the son they never had and having the family he never had. So it must have been freeing for him to be over there and feel kind of safe over there because he obviously wasn't at home. So he got his first apartment, like I say, at 21. He spent most of the days kind of, you know, smoking pot and writing songs. And then one day he was driving along the road and he describes it as like kind of one of those like when a lightning bolt hits you moments. He heard Be My Baby by the Ronettes on the radio. And everybody knows Be My Baby. If you don't know it, just watch Dirty Dancing, I don't know, look it up, like, every, nobody puts baby in the corner, like, come on, you know, you know, be my baby, but he said he heard it, and it was like a godlike experience, he had to pull over, because he said it just flipped his lid, he said he couldn't believe it, and it was a Phil Spector song, and as much as I think Phil Spector is a total wiener, like, 
geez, the guy produced some great songs because he worked with wonderful artists. But he is a wiener. Like, have a drink every time Phil Spector fucking murders someone. You're going to be drunk soon. Anyway, so he idolized Phil Spector, but definitely in a way that was more beautiful than the music that Phil Spector was making. Phil Spector had a lot of anger and he was taking that out on his productions and you could hear it. And Brian kind of did different things than Phil Spector. He kind of made that music come out more in a beautiful way. He built a wall of sound as well. He used the same wrecking crew, the same studio musicians as Phil Spector was using, Hal Blaine, Carol Kay, musicians of that nature. And he also recorded in the same Hollywood studio that Phil Spector was recording in at the time. So they had that kind of going on. But like I say, two totally different personalities. Brian was a natural born producer and it was just clear that he used music as, as therapy, not something angry. Brian was an introvert, like I say, by kind of design. He loved the studio life and he hated touring. He absolutely hated touring. It wasn't, it just wasn't his jam. He felt uncomfortable. It made him turn himself kind of further inward and turn his attention further inward. It made him uncomfortable. He didn't like it. Like I say, it was just too much. He loved every instrument and he experimented with different instruments and different studio musicians and different things in the studio often in the unconventional things like theremins or putting like a bassoon on something, just things that you wouldn't think that are hiding underneath all those tracks that are there. If you listen, you can listen to a lot of tracks. I'm not going to give you a stack of tracks right now. But we're there. We're going to talk about unconventional instruments going on tracks later as well. Also on, on Metal Lords. But I'm saying, like, he was still bullied by his dad, you know, and continually the studio was not a good place for him to be when, when Murray Wilson was around. You know what I mean? He was pushy. He was egotistical. He was just on his tail all the time. And eventually, in 1964... Brian just had enough and he fired Murray Wilson and Murray Wilson got depressed and he took to his bed for weeks and weeks and weeks in 1964 and he was bummed out and you know he just got ass burnt about it and he started making a beach boy group called the Sunrays that were his like protégés. Tell me that's not a ripoff. By this time the Beach Boys and the Beatles kind of were challenging Brian to write better than he had been in his mind and he really captured that California sound and the Beach Boys really captured that California sound as personified obviously by Brian Wilson and the things he was capturing personally they had 16 hit songs they had seven albums between 1963 and 1964 they recorded a lot and Brian wrote almost everything on every one of those albums imagine a year writing seven albums and writing everything yourself doing all the arrangement, all the production, all like the, like the studio musician, like direction, everything, writing every single note, seven albums, count them, lucky seven. But in November, 1964, Brian Wilson, believe it or not, had a horrible panic attack on an airplane. He made the pilot in the plane wire his girlfriend, Marilyn Rovell, like I say at the time, and he just, uh, he got engaged to her. He made her promise that she'd get married to him. She was only 16 at the time. She was only 16 years old. If, if you get that joke, 
I want to be your friend. She was only 16 years old. Michael Caine. Oh, my God. Anyways, so she was only 16 years old. But like I say, they got engaged. And Brian like was having a panic attack on the plane. He was losing his mind. Just not having a good time mentally, like uh, what was happening. And then finally, on December 7th of that year, 1964, they were married in a small civil ceremony. And, you know, they moved. Like I say, Brian, by that Christmas, like, they only got married on December 7th. By that Christmas, on December 23rd, on a flight, Brian suffered his first of many nervous breakdowns. Um, he was on the cabin floor. He just kind of fell to it, kind of screaming and sobbing that he couldn't do this anymore. This wasn't for him. He couldn't do it. And the guys kind of thought they could calm him down. But they they couldn't. When someone's having a nervous breakdown and a panic attack, it was like that kind of proportion. Nothing's going to calm them down. So he got off the plane. They, like, they landed it. And he got his mom to pick him up from the airport and kind of take him home to Hawthorne because that's where he wanted to be. He wanted to be home and feel like at home and okay. And I think he was scared. So he really wanted to like be the homebody and stay home in the studio and write. And from that point on, he did not tour. He just could not go out on the road anymore and tour. And I mean, I get it. Like touring is not easy on the mind. It's not easy on the body. It's not easy on the spirit. It's not easy on anything. Touring is a tough thing and like mad respect to everybody who can and does tour because touring's taxing on you it, it takes a fucking lot out of you and that point on like i say brian wilson just did not tour so then glenn campbell obviously he was a, a studio musician at the time replaced brian on bass on tour while he stayed home and produced the hits and of course glenn campbell Glenn Campbell became the Wichita lineman like a rhinestone cowboy. He also became an alcoholic and a notorious wife beater. That is a totally other different documentary that you can watch on, 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 on Glenn Campbell, the Wichita lineman. But then he found Jesus and now his liver belongs to Jesus and his penis belongs to God. And Glenn Campbell, like, he stopped hitting women. I think he died as well. So he definitely stopped hitting women. Thank God. Oh, Glenn Campbell. What are you doing? That's not cool. Now, Brian really never stopped trying to seek his dad's approval of kind of what he was going through and what he was doing. He just really wanted to know that he was pleasing his dad and they fought often. They had a very turbulent relationship. You know, no matter what Brian did, it was never good enough for his dad. Brian's parents subsequently separated in 1965, but bought neighboring houses. They moved in beside each other. That's fucking weird. I don't think so. That's just, that's odd. So anyways, they did that. And, uh, by 1965, there was of course a lot of cross pollination in those days. Brian tried acid for the first time and saw God, which he'd later describe as something he would call an ego death. He saw God. He told his wife about it. He said his ego died. He had an ego death. And then from then on, he kind of slowed down with the hard stuff upon his wife uh, leaving temporarily because she said, you know, you need to slow down. And he just kept kind of chain smoking weed like it was his job. But then he made 
California girls. Do 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 do. Everybody knows California girls. It was like one of the Beach Boys' biggest hits ever. So then after Glenn Campbell left, Bruce Johnston was brought in permanently to replace Brian on the bass, and he became a permanent fixture in the Beach Boys, and still is a permanent fixture in the Beach Boys to this day. Brian was kind of trying to write and grow out of the bubblegum sort of commercial type, you know, Orange Crush, Catch a Wave songs, you know, the girl songs, the car songs, the sand songs. He was trying to get out of the commercialism that was the Beach Boys. And he wanted to branch out creatively and make the best album ever made. He wanted to make a, like the best album ever made. Enter Pet Sounds, arguably one of the best albums ever made. One of my favorite albums. That's my favorite album that, that Brian Wilson, he wrote that album with Tony Asher. And I think it's, it's, I think it's a bloody masterpiece. If you haven't listened to Pet Sounds, like put it on. Some people are like, oh, it's weird. I'm like, have you really listened to Pet Sounds? Like really listen to it. Like actually listen to it. Like as a whole, not song by song. Like listen to it as a one piece. I think you'll get it more. No cars, no girls, no sun, no sun lotion, no copper tone, no nothing like that. It was just straight up. Like it was a song about feelings. It was like sad songs about happy events you know what i mean the songs were so tragic on that album like caroline no every time i listen to that song it was about one of his first girlfriends brian wilson's and every time i listen to that song it like it annihilates me i was talking to someone about it about it not too long ago and i was saying that when i listen to caroline no it's just like a song about like teenage heartbreak and it's so beautiful and it's so raw because that's what it's about it's just about young love kind of like dying and having it like bloom and blossom for the first time and then just fall off the map. So that song is just crazy. So Caroline No to me is just about like a complete loss of innocence. And then obviously because Pet Sounds was so good and it was so revered, it was like number one in some competitive places like, you know, England, for instance, the Beatles like idolized Pet Sounds and, and, and compared you know, writing things for it to 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 to, to help Sergeant Pepper along. Even back in the USSR, uh, like on the White Album, was something that Paul McCartney asked Mike Love for help with, um, just to make a Beatles song sound more Beach Boysy, and they they helped each other. Brian recorded a, a whole bunch of the Pet Sound stuff with the Wrecking Crew while the boys toured Japan. And when they returned home, he'd bring them into the studio and they'd fill in the gaps, you know, the singing and everything like that. He'd do all the instrumentation and all the production and those sessions were good. There were good sessions, the Pet Sound sessions. The guys came in and filled up the, the gaps. His blessing and his curse is his genius, I guess. It's like Atlas shrugged and every time he made an album, he, uh, he had the weight of the world on his shoulders because he had to carry the whole band, obviously. And the boys historically apparently did not like the Pet Sounds album at all. Mike Love apparently called it Brian's ego music and found the album nauseating. Sessions were really strained. They were, you know, there's a lot of fighting, a lot of bickering going on with families. I mean, like I say, you can't pick your family. Pet Sounds though, like I say, was number one in the UK immediately when they released it. Not so much in America. But like I say, they were competing with the Beatles at the time, which was huge because Beatlemania was giant at the time, right? So, Good Vibrations, Good Vibrations came out. Oh my God. He was 25 years old. 
not even 25 years old, 24 years old, I think. Yeah, 24 years old. When Brian Wilson released Good Vibrations after, you know, around Pet Sounds, 1966. This was the pinnacle of his career, you have to understand. Good Vibrations was a pocket symphony. It took, this is, I can't believe this. It took six months to record. And it took $50,000 to record the one song. It was a pocket symphony, he said. He just, he, he wanted to record it so bad. But unfortunately, that recording and all those sessions proved his undoing in 1966. He really kind of fell off the map then. November 1966, the Beach Boys beat the Beatles in a British popularity contest. And Brian wrote his last number one hit that was for Good Vibrations. They have so many different versions of Good Vibrations that you can hear. Ask your Apple Music. Check it out on YouTube. There's all kinds of different iterations of Good Vibrations. But it, like I say, it ultimately unraveled Brian Wilson mentally and it went, took him to a place that was not good. The next album, obviously, he wanted to outdo Pet Sounds, so he, he aptly named it Dumb Angel and later renamed it Smile. It was supposed to be the next big hit. And uh, he got a collaborator. He got Van Dyke Parks to do it. Van Dyke Parks was famously, if you remember or not, worked on Neon Ballroom with Silverchair. He also did a bunch of music for Sesame Street, if you don't know that. I know that. I have little kids. And uh, I'll tell you, Smile was an American anthem. It was supposed to be uh, like a nod to Americana. And Brian's piano, you know, was in the sandbox in the living room to feel the beach. He was terribly, you know, indulgent at those times. He was taking a lot of speed. He was constantly smoking hash. He was just feeling the beach. Van Dyke Park said, you know, a lot of those sessions were weird. You know, the, the smile sessions got strange. At the time, in between all this happening, Brian Wilson opened a health food store. He got obsessed with health and natural health and talking about natural health and healthy eating. He opened uh, a health food store on the Sunset Strip called the Radiant Radish where he sold ginseng. Imagine going to a health food store and having Brian Wilson behind the counter in a bathrobe selling vitamin C and ginseng to you. Oh my God, I just, I can't believe it. So they started their own record company as well called Brother Records. They, they wanted their own label to kind of put out comedy records. So that's what they, they, they did. So they started Brother Records also so they could have their own rights and like own their own publishing rights. So they kept Brother Records. Smile Sessions, like I say, they got weird. They were either five minutes long. Brian Wilson would have the, the wrecking crew come in and say, all right, fellas, thank you. After five minutes, they play a few notes or he'd have them in for five or six hours. He'd, you know, light things on fire. He was famous for lighting fires in a garbage can, wearing a hat, showing up shirtless, you know, wearing a fireman's hat, just bringing animals into the studio. Brian Wilson did all kinds of things in those sessions. And then he said that, you know, he canceled sessions due to like bad vibes and like bad mojo going on. He, weird things started happening. So this like did not sit well with Van Dyke Parks. Brian Wilson started getting concerned that his house was bugged. So he started having secret meetings with the band, like, you know, in the pool. I think this freaked out Van Dyke Park. So at this time, like he quit, he was kind of done with the, with the, with, with the smile sessions. And Brian Wilson at that time claimed that the album was evil and you know, those, those sessions were not good and, and no, nothing good came of it. And those tapes, they were destroyed. And that was the end of it. If you ever get to hear the chance or sorry, if you ever get the chance rather to hear surfs up, 
that Brian filmed at his home after all these smile sessions. He kind of had someone come in and filmed it. It's just him by himself at the piano, just kind of before things kind of really tipped off the, the meter there. Watch it. You can see it on YouTube. It's Brian Wilson just surfs up. And it's just Brian Wilson at the piano, like I say, and he's young. And it's, it's almost a, a funeral to himself. It's almost like a funeral song for himself. I think he knew at the time that the, that the parade had gone by, that the whole bubblegum surfs up pop sort of bubblegum music had gone like festivals like the monterey pop festival was you know was coming things were coming up like woodstock like more harder artists were coming up and the beach boys you know candy coated super sweet image wasn't sitting well with people anymore i think brian wilson kind of knew that was going on personalities of the beach boys are going in a lot of different directions and of course this happens in every band everybody goes in their own direction mike love was kind of going towards the Maharishi in India and going to transcendental meditation. He kind of went with the Beatles and Donovan and Mia Farrow and stuff like that. Brian was heavily into drugs and kind of staying in bed and Carl did his own thing. You know, he tried to spearhead the Beach Boys in a very gentle way. You know, the, Dennis was, you know, wild with women and drinking and different things. You know what I mean? Everybody was doing their own kind of thing. And like I say, life happens and so that's what was happening to the beach boys they were growing up they were evolving as people and you know they're growing kind of further apart but still they're a family people eventually settle into their own you know niche little curated little wallpapered corner they just eventually settle there and that's where they're comfortable and that's what was happening to the beach boys they were getting older and they were settling down like i say mike love got into TM, big time. You look up Transcendental Meditation, oh my God, you'll find stuff about Mike Love. We'll talk about that later. Holy smokes. And everybody just became like family man too. Like everybody settled down, had kids. Carl became the band's new leader, like I say, and the peacemaker. And he implored Marilyn, Brian's wife, to let them build a studio in their Bel Air home. So they could be close to Brian and they would subsequently record seven albums in that studio, in Brian's home. And... It destroyed Brian's home life. Absolutely. Like, it destroyed it. It destroyed his home life. It destroyed his marriage. But they had to do it because it was for Brian. It was for, for the band. So his wife, she, bless her, she just went along with it. And by this time, Dennis Wilson, actually, believe it or not, had taken the Manson family, unknowingly, into his house. He'd taken this family with a leader named Charlie Manson into his house and started hanging out with them. And by this time, the boys started recording in Brian's living room. But generally, Brian was kind of retreating to his room by this time. He'd show up in his bathrobe, you know, and kind of say, you know, change this or change that or put this here, or put this there. And, you know, they change it and whatever. He'd kind of go back upstairs and go back to his room. I think chain smoke weed or hash or whatever. And he had his kids home and not a good scene he was eating a lot drinking a lot of booze like i say to cover up a lot of his emotional pain i think with his dad things like that kind of fell into the same category as his dad did he stayed in bed a lot so in the midst of all this in april 1968 carney and wendy wilson were born so he had two daughters with marilyn in this time with all these drugs and all this stuff going around you know he had his piano in the sandbox. There was a tent in his living room. People were always over smoking drugs. Brian was indulgent and everything like this. So he had two daughters, like, you know, within a year and kind of a half of each other. Carney and Wendy were Wilson. And, and he loved those kids. 
but he couldn't do it. He couldn't do it. He wasn't a father. He told his wife flat out, I can't do this because of how my dad raised me and I don't know any other way to raise my children. You have to do this. You have to raise these children. So again, I, I guess she didn't want to raise them with an absent father, but they were told at a very young age, like, listen, your dad has a problem with drugs and your dad has a problem with drinking, but he is a genius and you'll see that one day. And they were told that they say in interviews, very young, Carney and Wendy Wilson. They obviously went on to, to make Wilson Phillips. So good. Hold on for one more day. Everybody loves Wilson Phillips. Who didn't love Wilson Phillips in the 90s? Put your hand up if you didn't love Wilson Phillips. And now take that hand and slap yourself in the face because Wilson Phillips was the shit and still is. God damn it, I love Wilson Phillips. Just any day, give me some hold on for one more day and I will hold on any day. I love me some Wilson Phillips. So Brian Wilson obviously had those two children, but like I say, could not take care of them. He was using lots of cocaine back then. He was chain smoking, just not a good scene. In 1969, after a big fight with Brian, and still, you know, he's in bed, his father called him, or he called him and informed him he'd sold Brother Records, and he'd sold his publishing company for $700,000. All those publishing rights and all those songs to the tune of 700 grand? Oh my God, I would've lost my mind. In 1999, those songs were approved at $22 million. Could you imagine what they're worth now in 2022? Oh my God, $22 million was the value in 1999. Think about it, people. What does that worth to you now? In the early 70s, you know, Brian wrote songs. He still wasn't writing number one hits, but he was sick. You know, people would never hear these songs. He sunk into a very deep depression, just deeper and deeper into depression after losing all the publishing rights with his dad. Brian wrote Until I Die around this time. And right around this time, his father actually died. He couldn't make himself go to the funeral, neither could his brother Dennis. He kind of spoke about it and he was suicidal at this time and reported being suicidal. He became a recluse, you know, sometimes he'd just stay in bed. He described his father's death to reporters as making a man out of him. It, it, it made a man out of him for his dad to pass away. So I don't know if that was a therapeutic thing or... It was playing on his PTSD because his dad was his dad was his dad was bad to him. It was not good. He described his father's death as just just I don't not not necessarily a bad thing. He was very frustrated by his father. I think he loved his father, but I think he was very frustrated by his dad. I think the love was always there. I think it was just deep seated frustration. <sighs> now he spent most of the next three years, like I say, lying in bed, lying in bed. Just like Brian Wilson did. I saw lying in bed just like Brian Wilson did. Oh. Didn't the bare naked ladies guy get in trouble for cocaine and sex workers? Those poor sex workers got caught with that bare naked lady. Didn't he get in big trouble? Like they had a million dollars. If I had a million dollars. I would not be doing cocaine with some ladies of the day in broad daylight. Stephen Page, I think is your name. That's not good, bare naked lady. I'm a speaker's corner. Anyways, like I say, Brian and Wilson, he, lay, he laid in bed and he hid from the voices 
in his head because he was having, like he calls, a lot of mind demons. He drank a lot of alcohol to kind of numb some of his emotional pain. He just was listening to Be My Baby, this Phil Spector song, hundreds and hundreds of times. His wife said it was just coming out of his room. And he was just having an insatiable appetite for food and drugs and food and drugs. And people that were stopping by, she couldn't stop what people were giving him. She didn't know what people were giving him. Greatest hits were coming out by the Beach Boys by 1974 because there was no new Beach Boys material. He just wasn't writing. But they were putting out tons of Greatest Hits album because Capitol Records, the money machine's got to keep going. Now, something had to happen because Brian Wilson was out of his goddamn mind. So in 1975, they called in Dr. Eugene Landy, and he was going to shrink to the stars. Dr. Landy had worked with all kinds of people. He had 24-hour staff. He had Brian off of drugs and on a diet. He bullied him. He forced him out of bed. He forced him back into the studio kind of before he was ready. He it just, it didn't go well. It was great business, but not on the whole when it came to mental health. Brian got into the water after his therapist told him, you will not die, you will not die. And he said, write it on a note for me. So Brian put it in his bathrobe and went surfing. He put a note, said, you will not die in his bathrobe and went surfing and believed him and he, and he went. Not good. So this guy was kind of controlling his mind. Dr. Landy was charging him at this point $20,000 a month for around-the-clock staff. Ridiculous. The band forced Brian back on the road before he was ready. And again, what happened? He slipped back into drug use and overeating. The final straw that kind of broke the camel's back is when he offered Carney drugs. And his wife, Marilyn, left with the kids. She was done. You can do a lot of things, but don't offer drugs to kids. Holy shit. Woo, that got me emotional. That's wrong, man. So he was so out of his mind, he, he offered drugs to his kids. So I think his wife recognized that and she left him. So September 1978, they got divorced and Brian spent many, many months hospitalized for drug dependency and obviously addiction and things like that. He didn't see his girls for the next 15 years. 15 years he just ignored them because he couldn't do it anymore. He was coming to the realization that he was older and unhip and, you know, the, the, the Beach Boys sun bleach brand wasn't cool. I think that's a tough pill to swallow. Losing your wife's a touch, uh, like a tough pill to swallow. Losing your kids is a tough pill to swallow. Losing the Beach Boys is a tough, it's a tough pill to swallow. He, he began living with a nurse that he met in rehab. Like I say, he smoked four packs of cigarettes a day, sat at the piano. He matched what he smoked in cigarettes with giant steaks. He had a giant appetite, like I say, and did drugs. His brother was coming over. Dennis was coming over, giving him every what substance he could have, making him write songs for cheeseburgers, just throwing them at him. Terrible, like substance abuse. People were throwing stuff at him. No one could reach him. They, he just wouldn't pick up the phone. They called Dr. Landy back into the picture. They said something has to be done about Brian. The Beach Boys wanted to do something. In 1982, Brian Wilson was fired from the band. This fucking annihilated him. And he ended up in Hawaii. Clean and 20 pounds lighter. Brian was cut off from everyone, including the Beach Boys, for over six months. He lost over 100 pounds, but they cut him off from his family. They cut him off from the Beach Boys. They cut him off from his daughters. They cut him off from his... Like any, anyone, Dr. Landy was in charge of everything and his mind. Where was his mind? It was in Dr. Eugene Landy's hands. 24-hour staff. 
And while this happened, his brother actually passed away. Dennis Wilson died, and um, he died while diving off of his boat in 1983. So his youngest, or middle brother rather, his middle brother passed away diving off his boat in 1983, and that kind of annihilated him. His blood alcohol was 0.26, so that's pretty high. He didn't really kind of surface for a little while, and then they got him. We got to address Kokomo, okay? Brian Wilson was not on that one. I'll tell you who was, though. Who was on Kokomo? Uncle Jesse and the Rippers. John Stamos was on Kokomo. If you watch the video, he's, like, playing the bongos. He's doing great, but, like, like I say... He was not, the case was, the Brian Wilson was not on that. In 1984, he got diagnosed as a manic depressive, paranoid schizophrenic, and he uh, he was obviously diagnosed with a lot of damage from the drug use he did. Like, and all the drug use that he had conjured up over the years, it had kind of sat on top of each other and made big holes in his brain. And so he was on a new cocktail meds that were were prescribed from Dr. Landy, and this just reminds me of something called the shrink next door. Did you see The Shrink Next Door? The Shrink Next Door. Oh my gosh, this show with Paul Rudd as Dr. Ike and poor, poor Will Ferrell as the patient. The show also featured Katherine Hahn as, as, as Will Ferrell's sister. The show was excellent. It made me absolutely hate Paul Rudd though. I used to love him. He was like my secret boyfriend. Well, not secret, but like my, my celebrity crush. I had Paul Rudd. After watching the show, I just want to say Paul Rudd disgusted me on the show as Dr. Ike. The thing that was more disgusting was this patient was being taken advantage of by this shrink that was living with him and taking advantage of his money. Like Dr. Landy and Brian Wilson, it was the same sort of thing. He moved in beside him, wanted to have a mansion beside him, was always with him, cut him off from his family, these kinds of things. Oh my God, it made me so angry. Watch the shrink next door. You have to see it. Brian, oh my God. Brian just couldn't talk to anybody. His calls were cut off. People were cut off until 1986. And he went on a date with Melinda Ledbetter. He went on his first date. Brian Wilson had bodyguards around him because Dr. Landy wanted to make sure he was never alone. So he had bodyguards wherever he went. And you can uh, you can see this actually in the movie Love and Mercy. It's got uh, Elizabeth Banks as as melinda ledbetter it's got uh, a young uh a brian wilson played by paul dano and it's called an uh, older brian wilson played by john john cusack and it's excellent the movie is like really well executed paul giamatti one of my favorites absolutely plays dr eugene landy and he plays a real he plays a real asshole like he really plays it good and you can see this i highly recommend this film in 1988 brian wilson was you know feeling fit again he made his first solo album you know, Dr. Landy, he kind of made it with Dr. Landy. It cost a million dollars to record. Dr. Landy's a producer. He's doing music on it. He's doing backups. That same year, Dr. Landy's charged with medical mal malpractice. He's charged with medical malpractice, but somehow he still remains Brian Wilson's musical guru, his favorite guru, his, 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 his spirit guru, his Svengali. He just, he loved everything about it. Landy created his own family for Brian while allowing him not to see his brothers and allowing him not to see his kids and he couldn't talk to them. Landy became part, like Brian's partner in crime and he played on Brian's fears. Brian often referred to him as like a brother he never had. He controlled him. He managed his business. He co-wrote songs. Everything you could do with a person he did with Brian Wilson. 
1990, the Wilsons tried to get conservatorship, like Britney Spears, you know, Britney Spears type stuff, over Brian, and they wanted to name Landy um, as getting out of everything because Brian had changed his will, and he had changed his will to Dr. Landy getting everything, and the Beach Boys wanted to kind of change that. So he was sued, and an agreement was made. No contract came for the two. Landy had to move to Hawaii and stay away from Brian, he remains a licensed psychotherapist. He reconnected with his daughters. Brian Wilson reconnected with his daughters. And he also reconnected with Melinda Ledbetter in 1992. They actually started dating for real. Eventually, they married in 1995. They adopted several children. And they, I think they adopted three, three kids. And they married in 1995. And she kind of helped bring kids into his life and bring fun again. And she's kind of been like his biggest cheerleader. She's been a good, you know, wife for him. They've been married since, like I say, 1995. She was a former model. She sold him a car, actually. And that's how they kind of met each other. And I think this relationship relighted something in him. And it just reawakened something more. He did some uh, Disney albums, like for his kids, that kind of Brian Wilson reimagined Disney. And they were fun. He did Lucky Old Son. He's done Imagination. He's done tons of albums by himself, not just with the Beach Boys. He's hooked back up with Van Dyke Parks. He can actually kind of be sober enough to kind of function now and, and, and write great songs. And, you know, and what happened, he actually ended up releasing Smile after it was, after it was shelved for all these years. It's not an album that a lot of people understand, but I think it's fantastic. It's weird. It's out there, but I love it. I love weird and out there. Come on now. Now, and he shocked fans because he was touring on and off with a ton of musicians. In 1993, Mike Love sued Brian Wilson. You know, Brian was never about money. He just wanted to song, Mike, Mike Love wanted to songwrite money. And he, he won. Brian gave him the money. And then he still continued to write songs with him, which I thought was kind of nice. They had a Beach Boys reunion. Didn't last long. 1995 rolls around. Like I say, after Brian got married, he moved to the Midwest. He didn't want to be a California boy anymore. He built another studio and his home. He re-released all these albums. But in 1997, that was a low point for his life. His mother died. She was kind of like his biggest cheerleader. And then two months right after that, his brother Carl died. He succumbed to lung cancer. And he was kind of like the guy who was, you know, like guiding the Beach Boys. I saw, you know, the Beach Boys with, with Carl Wilson years ago here in town. He was amazing. And Brian, like, ironically, survived all this stuff. All the drugs and all the drinking and all the staying in bed and the smoking and the getting... Like, he just, like, like I say, rose from the fire like a phoenix. Like, fuck, that's so metal. Brian Wilson is the most metal fucking thing ever. In 1999, he gave his fans a fucking shock with a solo tour. No one could believe it. The man who hated touring. Fans were shocked but delighted. A lot of people went to that. And finally, he released Smile, like I say. All the lost tapes, all the recordings... He claimed they were destroyed, bad, evil music. In 2005, there was a monument erected to the Beach Boys in Hawthorne, California. And, it, I mean, like, things have just been going on the up and up for Brian Wilson. He continues recording to this day. He's still, you know, surviving. His wife's still alive. He's kicking it with his kids and on tour when he can be. He's still, you know, kind of kicking ass and taking names. So, my hat is off to Brian Wilson this week because he's one of my biggest biggest influences i would say for like piano and writing things with weird chords and i said i would address weird instruments because 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 of the wonderful things he does 
Metal Lords on Netflix. Oh my God. I loved it. It was insane. I loved Metal Lords. Oh my God. Rob and I watched it and we were both like giggling through the whole thing. It was absolutely fantastic. If you haven't seen Metal Lords yet, you need to see Metal Lords just even for the friggin' for the, for the paint alone. It's amazing. It's just some black metal stuff that you need to hear. Norwegian post post death metal, I think they call it. It's just amazing. It was fantastic. I enjoyed it. But I mean, plug a cello in, put it through a tube screamer, see what happens. You'll see what I mean. Put your bass through a tube screamer. You'll see what happens. Put your piano, put anything through a fucking tube screamer and see what happens. You'll thank me later. Trust me. I know. I'd like to address that. I want to talk a little bit about this collaboration project I got going on. I'm so excited because, you know, it's a bit musical, but it's a bit creepy. It kind of takes some of my favorite things together and smashes them together like horror and music. And it combines them and smashes them together. I'm not going to totally, totally tell you what all the beans are yet. I can't tell you everything in the cauldron. But I am definitely conspiring with one of my favorite collaborators. And this collaborator, in my opinion, is goddamn genius. And I'm really excited to work with them. It's like the Brian Wilson, you know, Van Dyke Parks things. You know, we're going to do some production and sound designing and different fun things together. They will be on the show and we will chat about this very soon. But I will say you will be pleasantly horrified pleasantly horrified i'm really excited so let's see what happens when horror and music have a baby i want to know what happens when they have a baby you're going to find out what happens when they have a baby very soon i'm excited to share that with y'all i'm excited to drop this person on your face that's what's going to happen all right i'm really excited i'm going to drop my socials on your face F, you know where to find me every single week. I am at Twitter. If you want to find me there, I'm just at Tandy Candler. I'm always tweeting away on Twitter. Tweet, 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 Rock and Robin. I'm on Twitter. If you want to find me on TikTok, I'm ticking talking on there. Not often, but I'm on TikTok at 21st Century Rocker Mom. You can subscribe to my YouTube channel at Tandy Candler channel. Just click the little subscribe. If you click the little bell, you'll get a notification when the show goes live. It's fun to watch. Watch it with your friends. Don't watch it with your kids. There's lots of fucking swearing. Next week, I don't know if we're going to get weird and wonderful. You can find me on Instagram. You can always find me on Instagram at 21st Century Rocker Mom. I'm there all the time for you. DM me, email me, whatever you want. Get at me. I don't know. Next week, I don't know if we're going to do something scary. Like I say, or if we're going to do something musical, we'll vote on it. Elvis. I don't know, John Wayne Gacy, Pogo the Clown. I've been watching that John Wayne Gacy series and holy shit, maybe more research needs to be done on that clown. Oh, I don't know what we're going to have next week, but I'm just going to say things, creepy things are coming down the pipe and I'm so excited to terrify the shit out of you. And uh, so hold on to your underpants because you're in for a wild ride. I will see you next week. I am so excited to, uh, I'm so excited to start this and I'm so excited to share it with all of you. I'm so excited to hang out with you. I hope you all have a wonderful week. From me, your friendly neighborhood rocker mom. Have a good one. Be good to each other. Be kind to each other. Be safe and have a wonderful week ahead of you. I'm out.